This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. That was a pretty unenthusiastic bloom. <laughs> was it? And bloom. That's How's better. That? That's better. <laughs> That's right, friends and neighbors. Sorry. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a tower of truth in a trying world. Mm-hmm. And the number one show about medical preparedness, mostly because it's the only show about medical preparedness. <laughs> that's easy when there's no competition. <laughs> that's true. That's true. It's like Lord of the Rings. If by rings you mean old folks home. Old I'm the folks. Lord of the old folks home. Are you? I am. And who am, that's great. And now you know who I am. Well, actually, you don't know who I am. I'm actually Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net. And here's my wonderful co-host, Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. I'm purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so bright, I gotta wear shades. <laughs> I like the sun, okay. <laughs> bright as the sun, that's right. You're funny. Now on this show, you're going to get the conventional medical wisdom, but you'll also get the unconventional medical wisdom, plus at absolutely no charge, incoherent tirades by the winner of the World's Oldest Man Award. Hey, you know what? Whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for times of trouble, you're gonna hear it right here. But first, you gotta listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't. A little zombie apocalypse doesn't bother you while while you're the reincarnation of Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett. Well, or Daniel Boone. But you know what? You gotta answer me this out there. Who's gonna keep your family safe and healthy when the you-know-what really hits the fan? When the hospitals are out of commission and someone you care about is sick or injured, what's it going to be? Well, don't look at me. I'm just here for the beer. I'm looking at you, old buddy, old pal. You can bet when it's least expected, you're going to be elected. So get off your duff, learn some stuff. Why not get some medical supplies while you're at it? I'll bet Amy can tell you where you can find some. Absolutely. At store.doandbloom.net. We have all kinds of first aid kits from little pocket kits that'll go in your cargo pants pocket or big giant backpacks to take on those long journeys where you just might be out of touch with medical care or you won't be able to get there. Hey, I want to take a second to mention that the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, ranks 4.8 out of 5 on Amazon over more than 2,400 reviews. And it's still high on bestseller lists throughout the country. If you haven't checked out our greatly expanded new book, you're going to find the black and white version on Amazon and the color version at store.doomandbloom.net. We even have a color spiral bound version on our website. Well, school's ending and I'll bet you're going to spend more time in the great outdoors with the kids or maybe by yourself and commune with Mother Nature. Well, you're sharing her you got to know, with a lot of other critters. Now, in situations where people find themselves spending a lot of time outdoors, they're going to be exposed to all sorts of creatures that will want to make a meal out of them. I'm not talking about packs of wolves or grizzly bears. In this case, I'm talking about ticks. As many tick-borne illnesses are treatable in the early stages, a family medic really needs to know how to quickly identify and treat these conditions. Now, ticks are well-known carriers, also known as vectors, of disease-causing organisms that affect humans, pets, and wildlife. 
As a matter of fact, they're responsible for the vast majority of vector-borne diseases in the United States. They're not just a problem in the States, though. Ticks exist worldwide, with about 25 of the almost 900 known species being of medical importance. In extreme cases, these guys can be a, an extreme threat, a severe threat to long-term health. You might think of ticks as being insects, but actually they're eight-legged arachnids related to scorpions and spiders. The range and season for ticks actually seems to be increasing over time, with the National Institute of Health blaming higher temperatures in recent years as the reason. For example, the black-legged or deer tick now ranges all the way from the east coast to the south, to the upper Midwest, even down to Texas. The western black-legged tick covers the entire Pacific coast, a cousin of the regular black-legged tick. Others are more regional, such as the Lone Star tick, and these are mostly found as, well, you guessed it, Texas. And these actually aren't big carriers of Lyme disease, but they do carry other uh, diseases as well. And there are ticks, of course, in the Rockies that carry Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Ticks survive by biting the skin of the host and extracting a meal of blood. Unfortunately, they also transmit various disease-causing microbes to humans and animals through infected saliva. The CDC recognizes more than 15, including Lyme disease, tularemia, babesiosis, anaplasmosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, as I mentioned before, ehrlichiosis, and relapsing fever. Wow, you can see why these things are a serious medical concern. Let's talk about the life cycle of a tick. Ticks have a life cycle. It can last two or three years, and it includes egg, then larva, then juvenile, also called a nymph, and adult stages. Now, as an adult, some tick species, like the black-legged tick, are only as big as a sesame seed. Others, like the American dog tick, are much larger. Now, for a larva to develop into a nymph, or for a nymph to develop into an adult, a blood meal is needed. A meal of blood. Blah. It appears that the nymphs cause the most cases of Lyme disease. Now, the CDC estimates that about 30% of all ticks in the Northeast and Upper Midwest actually carry the organism known as Borrelia burgdorferia that causes the disease known as Lyme. Ticks are funny. They don't jump like fleas do. They don't fly like, well, flies. Usually ticks just hang on grasses and brushes holding on with their back pairs of legs and latching on to passerbys with their front pairs. The larvae like to live in leaf litter. Now, in inhabited areas, they can be found in shaded wood piles, leaf piles, tall grass. To pass along a disease to animals or humans, ticks have to first find their hosts by detecting smells or sensing body heat or feeling vibrations from movements. Once a tick latches onto its victim, its mouth parts pierce the skin and start extracting blood. The problem is, is that without finding an actual tick attached and feeding on you, it's hard to tell one insect bite from any other. While there might be a small red bump after the tick detaches, some experience a more expanded area of irritation and itching. Now, the appearance of acute Lyme disease, for example, is a little different. We're going to talk about that in just a while. Now, given the risk for disease, a thorough examination of the entire body for ticks is warranted anytime within two hours of returning from a day outdoors. Now, this is most easily accomplished during a shower, let's say. Look behind the knees and armpits, behind the ears, uh, in the hair of the scalp, let's say, or other hairy areas, the groin, even the belly button. 
Now, you want to be especially careful to examine dogs and children as well when they return from a day outdoors. They easily, maybe more likely, are going to wind up getting tick bites. You want to inspect their clothing, dog or not dog clothing, but children's clothing, and backpacks for ticks as well. Now, once you find one, it's important to remove the tick as soon as you possibly can. It may be possible to just brush or wash it off if it hasn't bitten you yet, but if that doesn't work, the simplest method is to use a fine tip tweezers to grasp the bug as close to the skin surface, your skin surface, as possible, and pull straight up in an even manner. Now, if you twist as you pull or you pull at an angle, that may cause the mouth parts to remain in the skin. That is bad and can still transmit disease. Now, after removal, you want to thoroughly clean the area with soap and water or rubbing alcohol and apply antibiotic ointment. You want to wash your hands afterwards, of course, and as an added precaution, you want to launder any clothing in hot water and dry it in high heat. If all of this is done soon after the bite occurs, infection is highly unlikely. Now, there are other methods of tick removal. Some people have specially designed instruments. Uh, some people smother it with petroleum jelly. Some people even light it on fire. But no method is more effective than what I just mentioned, simply pulling it straight out. So let's talk about Lyme disease. Spring and fall are seasons that ticks are commonly known to bite humans, and the most well-known disease passed by ticks to humans is known as Lyme. Lyme disease was unknown until about 1975, and it has nothing to do with limes. It has actually to do with where it was first found, in the town of Old Lyme, Connecticut. Now, since then, Lyme has become the most common tick-borne illness in the entire Northern Hemisphere, so common that May is officially Lyme Disease Awareness Month. In settings where winters are milder and acorns are abundant, the population of animals that ticks like to feed on increases. This includes not only deer, which the black-legged tick is also known as a deer tick, but also include things as small as mice, which are a favorite of baby ticks. And the deer, I guess, are the most popular targets for adults. Besides us, that is. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are estimating that there are going to be tens of thousands of Lyme cases in human, humans every year, and that's three times the number reported about 20 years ago. So let's talk about the symptoms of Lyme disease. You need to know how to recognize it. So sometimes the presence of a tick on the body goes unnoticed, and by itself, the bite wound is not medically significant. You know, it's not a terrible injury. And transmission of Lyme disease, the good news is that transmission of Lyme disease by a biting tick is rare in the first 24 hours. Now, once at least 24 to 48 hours have passed, however, Lyme bacteria is more likely to be caught, passed to the host by the tick. Symptoms can become apparent anywhere from, let's say, three days to a month afterwards. So you may not know the actual event that caused the tick bite or when the tick bite actually occurred. You'll usually see things like rashes, fever and chills, muscle aches, joint pain, and fatigue. Now, in about 70% of patients, <clears throat> the rash occurs before the fever and starts off as a bump with redness in the area of the bite, which then develops into a ring-like bullseye that feels warm to the touch. And this, is spread, this spreads out over time. Now, some people don't get this, about 30%. They present with a spreading, crusty, splotchy area of redness, a red oval plaque, a bluish rash, skin tone uh, affects the appearance, or they may show nothing at all. Usually very little pain or itching is associated with the bite itself uh, or the rash itself. This pattern, which spreads over time, it's called 
erythema migrans because it migrates and it goes into moving and changes uh, shape and maybe enough to confirm the diagnosis especially in a situation where there is not lab results you're going to have to go by physical appearance Lyme disease however is oftentimes missed or misdiagnosed especially if the symptoms are mild or especially if you missed the tick bite now, how to treat Lyme disease. When, when a bite from a black-legged tick is newly identified, the use of antibiotics and single doses or just for a day may prevent Lyme disease. A single preventative dose of two 100 milligram tablets of doxycycline, which you can find as aquadoxy uh, on, the, on the fish antibiotics uh, online scene, may suffice to get rid of it altogether. And for children, the dose will be 4.4 milligrams per kilogram that's two every 2.2 pounds for children of any age weighing less than 20 kilograms about 45 pounds now once there is the presence of erythema migrans the rash that is rapid treatment can still result in a cure now symptoms however may last for a time after treatment so you've got to actually treat for a much longer period of time doxycycline 100 milligrams twice a day for 14 to 28 days that's an option in children uh, and to take it this long they have to be over eight years old four milligrams per kilogram twice a day for 14 to 28 days but a maximum of course of, of 100 milligrams per dose never go above the adult dose when you're giving uh, medicine to kids but you want to avoid doxycycline unfortunately in pregnant or breastfeeding women because it can have effects on the fetus now alternatively Amoxicillin can be used in pregnant or breastfeeding women. And you give doses of 500 milligrams three times a day for 14 to 28 days in this case. For children younger than eight years of age, you can use amoxicillin also, 50 milligrams per kilogram, with a maximum of the adult dose, 500 milligrams three times a day. Uh, azithromycin or Zithromax, that's been mentioned as a second alternative. It's considered to be less effective, but can be used in people that are allergic to penicillin family drugs and you don't have doxycycline. Now these antibiotics at the time of the this podcast were still available in non-prescription veterinary equivalents. There is a condition that if you don't treat Lyme disease early, it can progress to something called chronic Lyme. It's often missed in its early stages, so this is not a surprising thing. You may come across people that have this. Some people progress to a late stage that has a really complex and diverse set of symptoms. And this can occur months after the actual tick bite and includes things like neck pain, stiffness, uh, severe headaches, multiple rashes away from the site of the, the original bite, joint pain and swelling, um, nerve damage uh, that causes drooping on one side of the face. We call that Bell's palsy, B-E-L-L, -L, Bell's palsy, um, irregular heartbeats, dizziness, shortness of breath, inflammation of the spinal cord or meningitis, uh, and numbness tingling in the hands feet or face and even mental issues with, such as memory loss and a lot of these symptoms persist for long periods of time now as of yet there's just not a, pro a proven cure or vaccine for chronic or late stage lyme disease you got to treat the individual symptoms if you can we mentioned earlier there are other tick-borne illnesses and they include things like rocky mountain spotted fever and that's carried by the rocky mountain wood tick or a species of dog tick, 
And this features a red rash, which usually develops about three days after the fever begins. The rash may vary in appearance during the course of the disease, may be splotchy, could be pinpoint dots. Almost all sufferers get the rash in this case, but it appears later in the illness, making early diagnosis difficult. And left untreated, you can get severe damage to blood vessels that even require amputation of fingers, toes, or even limbs in some cases. Now, like Lyme disease treatment with doxycycline at the very beginning gives the best results. There's another one called ehrlichiosis, and that's caused by a bacterium transmitted by the Lone Star Tick. And symptoms from infection usually present about 7 to 14 days after being bitten. The appearance of the rash usually follows a fever. It ranges from spotty, flat, or raised red areas to multiple small purplish areas. We call those petechiae, and they're caused caused by small blood vessels that burst. I mean, tiny blood vessels, your capillaries. Nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea also occur with ehrlichiosis. And like many tick-borne illnesses, early treatment with doxycycline is also effective. It's not a bad uh, antibiotic for you to get in fish form or however form you can get it. Now, babesiosis, that's a disease caused by parasites that infect red blood cells passed by ticks. They're usually transmitted by the same species of tick that harbors the organism that causes Lyme disease. Symptoms appear within several weeks, but may recur years later or months later. These are going to include fever and chills, night sweats, fatigue, head muscle joint pain. Uh, some people have GI symptoms like nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, and appetite loss. So these are actually also pretty common, as is a sort of weird dark appearance in the urine. Now, other than the appearance of the rash, most other tick-borne diseases have a similar presentation. You can always expect to see some fever, chills, head and body aches, fatigue, and sometimes nausea and vomiting. Today's episode of the Survival Medicine Podcast is brought to you by your mom. Mom, that lady who lived at your house when you were a kid and was all bossy and judgy about how your room looked and how long you played video games. Well, now you have your own place and she demands you come visit her at her house. I'm a busy man, Mom. I can't just drop everything every time you make a casserole and come over so we can stare at each other for two hours. And Amber is an exotic dancer, Mom, not a stripper. Jeez, there's a difference. Mom, she made you what you are today, poor slob. Okay, well, let's see, where are we? Oh, you know, this podcast was actually recorded on National Stop the Bleed Day, so I guess I should talk a little bit about bleeding. Let's face it, in scenarios where there's no rule of law, the risk of civil unrest is pretty high. Traumatic wounds are going to be pretty common and you're going to wind up facing them as medic. Even activities of daily survival in quiet times might cause injuries that could be life-threatening. Therefore, the medic for a family or mutual assistance group must always be prepared for the worst possible injuries. Now, cuts in the skin, they could be minor, they could be catastrophic, they could be deep, superficial, clean, or infected. Significant cuts we call lacerations and they pen those penetrate both the superficial layer of the skin, the epidermis, and the deep layer of the skin, what we call the dermis. They're usually associated with bleeding if they get through the dermis. And the amount of that bleeding depends on the blood vessels that are disrupted. Knowing how to manage hemorrhagic wounds quickly and effectively is going to be pretty good knowledge to have, and so are the supplies that will help. In studies of casualties in recent wars, 50% of those killed in action died of blood loss. 25% died within the first golden hour, what they call the golden hour after being wounded. Now, you probably have heard of it, but if you haven't, the golden hour is the time after which a victim's chance of survival diminishes significantly if they're untreated. 
Unless you give them aid, there's a threefold increase in death rate for every 30 minutes, 30 minutes without care thereafter. Now, if there's active bleeding and the wrong artery is severed, you know what? It might not take an hour. It might not be the golden hour. It might be more like the platinum five minutes. It might take just a few minutes for a person to bleed out and be beyond medical help. A severed femoral artery, for example, can lose more than a pint of blood a minute. Now, bleeding from a vein looks different than bleeding from an artery. Venous bleeding manifests as dark red blood that drains pretty steadily from a wound, while arterial bleeding is bright red due to a higher oxygen content, and that comes out in spurts that correspond to the pulse of the patient. As the vein and artery usually run close together, a serious laceration can certainly have both. Once the injury is deep enough to go below the level of the skin, there are large blood vessels, muscles, nerves, all sorts of things that can be involved. That makes it very important to assess circulation, sensation, and a bit, the ability to actually move the injured area. You're going to notice more problems with vessel and nerve damage in deep lacerations and crush injuries. In response to fatalities that were due to bleeding in recent military conflicts, we learned some painful lessons. And the U.S., as a result, instituted what we call Tactical Combat Casualty Care. That's TCCC or TC3. There are guidelines that they put together and that are going to help prevent the up to one in five deaths from hemorrhage in the field that could be prevented by quick action by people that are at the scene. The realization of the importance of this fact has led not only military but civilian and law enforcement authorities to establish similar strategies. And you know what? So should the survival medic. Evaluating blood loss is a very important aspect of dealing with wounds. Now, an average-sized human adult has about 10 pints of blood. That's 4,750 milliliters about. And the effect on the body caused by blood loss varies with the amount incurred and a little bit on the individual. The American College of Surgeons recognizes four classes of acute hemorrhage, along with their expected signs and symptoms. Let's go over those. Class 1 is hemorrhage less than or equal to 15% of blood volume. That's 1.5 pints or 750 milliliters in an average adult male. Well, you know, you can donate a pint of blood. That's slightly less than 500 milliliters, but without any major issues. At this level of bleeding, there's probably very little signs and symptoms, although a lot of people will have a slightly rapid pulse. They're going to feel vaguely faint or anxious simply because they're bleeding a lot. Now, class two hemorrhage is much more significant. Hemorrhage winds up to being 15 to 30% of total blood loss volume. That's 1.5 to 3 pints of blood or 750 to 1500 milliliters. The Body's efforts to compensate for less red blood cells at this point results in a faster heartbeat, a faster breathing rate, and this is done to speed oxygen to tissues. This victim is going to appear pale and the, their skin was going to be cold. They're going to feel weak and anxious. Their blood pressure, however, will remain within their normal range. And if you had the ability to evaluate it, you're in production, you would begin to notice, would begin to slow down in order to keep some of that fluid volume in the body. A class 3 hemorrhage, you've got a real problem. Hemorrhage is 30 to 40% of total blood content. That's 3 to 4 pints, 1,500 to 2,000 milliliters. Wow. That point, well, you're going to expect the heart to be beating very quickly and breathing very fast because the body is straining to get enough oxygen to tissues. Blood vessels, the blood pressure in this person is going to be dropping and smaller blood vessels and extremities are going to constrict to keep the body core circulation going. 
So this person's going to be confused, pale, and in some type of shock. The urine volume is going to decrease significantly, and at this point, well, you're probably going to need a blood transfusion. Class 4, well, that's hemorrhage more than 40% of total blood loss, 4 pints, or more than 2,000 milliliters, and the heart in this situation can no longer maintain blood pressure and circulation. All parameters in this situation, they're well without outside range, and the patient becomes lethargic due to lack of oxygen and circulation to the brain. Without major resuscitation at this point, organs like the kidneys are going to start failing. In this case, you can expect your patient to have lost consciousness, and if bleeding doesn't stop and there's not major help, heart rate and respiration is going to slow and eventually cease as the patient dies. Well, let's talk a little bit about evaluation of blood loss in the field. There are modern strategies for bleeding trauma, and the most modern one uses the mnemonic MARCH, M-A-R-C-H. MARCH is a concept that's pretty well known to many people in the preparedness community. It's an effective primary service and survey in serious hemorrhage. It stands for MARCH, M, massive hemorrhage. You want to establish, continue, or improve the control of life-threatening bleeding by whatever means necessary. That means tourniquets, hemostatic agents, pressure dressings, pelvic binders, more tools like that to help stop hemorrhage. By the way, medical ease for bleeding control is called hemostasis. Now, A in March is for airway. You want to establish and maintain a reliable airway via chin lift, jaw thrust, recovery position, oral or nasal areas, airways, and other devices or procedures. R in March is for respiration. You want to seal open chest wounds, decompression, tension, pneumothorax, and ventilate the patient to assure oxygen gets to the lung. This may be done through a bag valve mask. We have uh, some of those in our, uh, our store, uh, at a Nurse Amy store, and include the use of oxygen if available. Now, in modern times, trained professionals may even place a tube in the windpipe of a casualty. That's a procedure known as intubation and is a way to guarantee that you're getting air into the lungs. C in March stands for circulation. In normal times, IV fluids are going to be administered to treat shock. Now, this may involve giving blood or other related products as well. Improvement in circulation can also be seen by laying a victim flat or in the shock position and preventing heat loss. So keep the victim warm by covering them with a blanket. Monitor the site of the injury carefully. If the wound's in an extremity, raise their legs 12 inches above the level of the heart. And if the wound's in the torso, well, in that case, then you don't want to elevate the legs. Of course, off the grid, you might not have all the materials to really implement all the aspects of March. But once you've evaluated and treated the issues addressed in March as best you can, it's time to implement something else. I call it PAWS, P-A-W-S. P is for pain management. A is for antibiotics for early prevention of infection. W, wound reassessment and care. You have to continually, continually keep an eye on that wound, make sure it's not re-bleeding, make sure that it is healing well. And S for splinting fractures and providing stabilization to limb dressing. So P, pain management, A, antibiotics, W, wound care, and S, splinting and stabilization. Now, unlike March, you might have all the options necessary to implement pause if you've accumulated things like pain meds, antibiotics, wound dressings, and splints. All these are widely available in one form or another, even antibiotics for addition to your medical storage. Yeah, I've written many articles about that. 
A lot of these things you can find, by the way, in Nurse Amy's store at store.doomandbloom.net, although we don't sell antibiotics. Let's talk about some bleeding control techniques. First, I guess, is how to apply direct pressure, right? We've established that when you encounter a person with a bleeding wound, the first course of action is to stop the hemorrhage. Now, in the grand majority of mild to moderate cases, mild to moderate cases, direct pressure on the damaged vessel might stop bleeding all by itself. The medic should always have nitrile gloves in his or her pack. That's something that's a real basic item and you should have it because gloves are going to prevent the wound from being contaminated by a dirty hand. You want to try to avoid touching the palm and finger portions of the gloves as you put them on. Try to just grab them by the cuff and put them on that way. If there are no gloves, you might want to grab a bandana or other barrier, even a t-shirt. Thick is better than thin. Uh, clean hands are very important, but having said that, don't spend a lot of time looking for the hand sanitizer. Expose the wound, stop the bleeding immediately. If you have a medical kit, you know, you got to get to the items you need. In this case, you can temporarily apply, apply pressure on the wound with a knee, for example. Press on, on the wound area with the knee to keep your hands free for the few seconds that it should take to access your equipment. Be aware your gloves are going to get slippery from all the blood. You might need an extra pair or two in your kit. Never a bad idea. Now, there isn't a great deal of consensus regarding the exact proper way to apply direct pressure, but some actions are just common sense. What you want to do is hold a barrier dressing or a cloth item in one hand, place it that directly on the bleeding area. Place the other hand on top of the first and arm straight, position yourself directly over the wound and press downward. This is going to give the maximum amount of weight and pressure necessary on the bleeding area, which by the way is usually the part of the wound that's closest to the torso. Bleeding in an extremity may also be slowed by elevating the limb while still maintaining direct pressure above the level of the heart. Now, this decreases the blood pressure in the limb and possibly the force by which blood leaves the body. Now, this strategy doesn't always work, but it's unlikely to worsen the situation. Now, it may become very apparent very quickly that direct pressure is not going to work. Bleeding that doesn't respond to pressure and becomes life-threatening, that's characterized oftentimes by blood spurting or pouring out an arterial bleed, clothes saturating with blood very quickly, or an amputation injury, of course, or perhaps a patient becoming confused, disoriented, losing consciousness, and that is a sign possibly that there's a lot of bleeding going on. Now, if you see signs of heavy bleeding, I want you to abandon direct pressure and then immediately place a tourniquet. If you have a tourniquet, place it. If not, improvise it. There are many ways to do it. We've got videos exactly on that issue. You'll find them at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy YouTube channel. Because waiting basically is only going to put the victim in more danger. Now, for people with training, a curved instrument known as a hemostat might be a good useful thing to have in your kit because it can be used to directly clamp a bleeding vessel if you see it. And we call those vessels bleeders. This should only be done if you know what you're doing, though, and can easily reach and visualize the point of bleeding. That's not always possible because transected veins and arteries oftentimes retreat into the soft tissue, especially in people who are obese. Now, if you have it, suture or other string can be used to tie the bleeder off, and then you can remove the hemostat. Now, some wounds that are deep or wide require packing with wound dressings, with things like gauze. You want to start with tightly pressing the end of the dressing onto the bleeding blood vessel, the area that's actually bleeding. You want to maintain firm pressure at all times. If possible, then you want to fill the wound all the way to the skin surface with the dressing. Now, if you don't have special blood clotting gauze, use plain bandages, dressings, or 
even clean cloth to pack the wound. Vacuum pack dressings, also called compressed gauze, they are available, widely available online, so compact, it's easy to fit several in your pack, and definitely excellent additions to your medical storage. So let's talk a little bit, before I get too far into this, about common mistakes while you're treating hemorrhage. Now, errors committed in the approach to bleeding wounds, they can lead to pretty tragic consequences, so you better not make these mistakes. You don't want to panic because that leads to inaction. People will have this paralysis that occurs when they see somebody bleeding, and you need to counteract that and you need to act rapidly. Uh, not applying firm enough pressure to the wound. Some people uh, put their hands on the wound, but don't put their body over their over the wound so that they're not getting any weight on the wound, uh, just what they can uh, produce by pressing on it with their hands. But you really want to get your entire weight of the body on there if you possibly can. Now, hesitating to apply a tourniquet in cases of heavy bleeding, that is a big mistake. That is the first action you should take placing a tourniquet if you know that the bleeding is significantly dangerous kind of bleeding, heavy, heavy bleeding. Now, failing to apply pressure to a hemostatic dressing for the required three minutes, a lot of people think once they've got this special dressing that's got stuff that stops bleeding, that all they have to do is just put it in and just go away. Well, that's not what you need to do. You, this will not work. Even these miracle dressings will not work unless you are pressing on them, giving as much pressure on the area as you can for the required three minutes. Three minutes. Of course, people that constantly loosen and retighten tourniquets, you really shouldn't do that unless it's clear that you're not working to that it's not working to stop the bleeding. If that's the case, what you should do is try to put a second tourniquet a couple of inches above the first. That's something that would make a lot of sense. And of course, keep a, not not looking to make sure that there are not other wounds that are bleeding. Remember, entry wounds oftentimes ex have exit wounds too. I think you could be bleeding more from the exit wound than the entry wound. And of course, in putting yourself in at-risk situations with a lack of equipment, that's a problem too. If you're going to be out on patrol, foraging, whatever, and you're in a situation where there could be a hostile, hostile encounter, well, you need to have all of the equipment to stop heavy bleeding. Hey, Nurse Amy here. Today we're going to talk about herbal medicine, and this information is from one of my favorite books, a DK's Encyclopedia of Herbal Medicine, the definitive reference to 550 herbs and remedies for common ailments. Great book. I recommend it for everybody. The author is Andrew Chevalier, and that's C-H-E-V-A-L-L-I-E-R. And um, it not only is it a great book, but it has really fantastic photographs. And it's really important when you're trying to identify herbs that might exist in your garden or around your home or Maybe you've gone on a little walk and you're not sure what it is. I think these pictures in here um, are really, really good and describe what the leaves are like and um, basically do help you identify herbs so you don't get confused. In the past, medicinal herbs have been made into an extraordinary variety of formulations. We're going to talk about some of those um, and then we'll have a part two of this for sure. Not only infusions, which is like a tea, um, decoctions, which is like simmering till you reduce the liquid with 
usually parts of the plant, not necessarily just flowers or just leaves, but sometimes uh, multiple parts of the plant. Tinctures, uh, but also preparations such as elixirs. And in this book, it tells you step-by-step -step instructions, which we're going to go over some of those for making common herbal preparations. Making most types of herbal medicines uh, is not really difficult. You just kind of need to follow the steps, but it can be time consuming, especially for things like elixirs. So if you lack the time or equipment, you may go want to go ahead and buy ready-made remedies from a good herbal supplier. I do love Mountain Rose Herbs. I know they make those in small batches. It's a family-owned company. So check out Mountain Rose. I don't have any association with them um, other than just being someone who has purchased their essential oils and uh, other things for a really long time. Before you start using medicinal plants, again, we were talking about identification. Things that you've collected from the wild, it's really, really essential that you know exactly what it is that's in your hand. Um, Foxglove leaves can be mistaken for comfrey. So that could be a fatal mistake. You need to be super clear about what you're using before you start you know, producing an infusion or a decoction or elixir. If you're not sure, get outside help. Hopefully you'll know somebody. Uh, if the electricity is still on, try to Google it. If you're not sure, don't do it. It's better to be safe than sorry for sure. And again, just purchasing some of these things in advance. You know, you can buy dried herbs and store them properly and, you know, get some decent um, expiration dates out of them before they go bad. And if you keep these herbs properly, you can make your tinctures and your salves and, and whatever it is you want later. And you know exactly what it is because it's labeled and you're buying it from a reputable company. So consider that. But if you're going to do... Um, you know, do make some of these things. Some of the equipment you need are some utensils. You need glass enamel and stainless steel pots, pans, wooden or steel knives and spatulas, and plastic or nylon sieves. A wine press is useful for making tinctures. Never use aluminum utensils. This element is potentially toxic and it's easily absorbed by the herbs. So take that into consideration. If you're going to um, be keeping these things for a while, um, and especially storage and just overall producing them. It, it's really good to have things sterilized. So all utensils used to make herbal remedies really should be sterilized for at least 30 minutes in a well diluted sterilizing solution, such as the type used for uh, baby's bottles. After soaking, rinse thoroughly with boiled water and dry in a hot oven or wash in a hot dishwasher. Proper sterilization maintains hygiene and prevents remedies, especially creams and syrups, from becoming moldy, which would really stink when you have spent so much time and energy making these and then they go bad. That is just not a good thing. So sterilizing your equipment is really important. In order to measure out the proper amount of these 
herbs and, and parts of the plants, weights and measures are good. So for ordinary purpose, ordinary kitchen scales are suitable, although electronic scales, of course, are more accurate. Metric measurement of grams and liters are generally much easier to use than what we typically use, like cups and stuff, when making remedies. It's difficult to weigh a small quantity, such as 10 grams, on some scales, although the electric ones will definitely measure tiny, tiny amounts. If your scale only goes, say, to 20 grams, then just half the quantity after you've measured that. Liquids can be measured in a kitchen measuring cup or jug, although conical and straight-sided glass measurements or measures are more accurate. Very small volumes of liquids can be measured in drops, so you should consider having droppers. For storage, different preparations may be kept for very various periods of time before they begin to lose their medicinal properties. Infusions, like the tea, should be made fresh every day. So in the morning, you make your infusion, you use it throughout the day, um, and then you actually can use that for two days. Um, decoctions must be consumed within 48 hours, as well as the infusion. So one to two days, you can use those. Store both of those, the um, infusion or the decoctions in a refrigerator if possible or at least a cool place. Tinctures and other liquid preparations such as syrups and essential oils need to be stored in dark glass bottles in a cool environment away from sunlight. But you can keep for a number of months or years. Ointments, creams, or capsules are best kept in dark glass jars also, although plastic containers can also be used. There's an interesting basic first aid kit, which is all herbal remedies. And I'm going to tell you some of the things that they have in it. Of course, bandages, a thermometer. Um, it looks like it has band-aids. Feverfew in capsules for headaches and migraines. Slippery elm. Powder for coughs and digestive upsets. Echinacea, capsules for colds, flu, and infections. Lavender essential oil for insect bites and stings, burns, and headaches. Tea tree essential oil as an antiseptic and antifungal. Valerian tablets for stress and insomnia. Garlic capsules for infections. The oil from the capsules also for earaches. Arnica cream for painful bruises and muscle pain. By the way, don't put Arnica on uh, open wounds. Witch hazel distilled water for healing cuts and scrapes. Thyme syrup for coughs, colds, and chest infections. Mirror tincture for sore throats and acne. Marigold cream for inflamed or minor wounds, skin rashes, and sunburn. And comfrey ointment for bruises, sprains, and for healing fractures. So I think that's really cool. Um, it's a basic herbal first aid kit. Now, I just want to discuss infusions uh, this time. We'll go on to some other formulations of herbs later, but I'm not sure everyone understands exactly what an infusion is. It's just the simplest way to pre prepare delicate aerial parts of the plants, especially leaves and flowers, for use as medicine and also as a relaxing drink. 
It can be made in a similar way to tea using either a single herb or combination of herbs and may be drunk hot or cold. The medicinal value of many herbs lies chiefly in their volatile oils, which will disperse in the air if a lid is not used while making your infusion. This is especially important in the case of, say, German chamomile. Use a teapot or place a lid or saucer over the cup if making just a small quantity. Use water that has just been boiled, so freshly boiled water. That's the important step. Popular herbal teas such as German chamomile are often taken as much for their refreshing taste as for their medicinal value, and they can be safely consumed in quantities of up to five to six cups a day. Some herbs, however, such as yarrow, sorry, <laughs> are significantly stronger and must be taken in less frequent doses. So know your herbs and know your dosage. Other herbs such as feverfew are so strong that they're not suitable, suitable for use in infusions. Always check the recommended dosage and quantity of the herb to use as infusions have medicinal actions that can produce unwanted effects at the wrong dosage. So first you want to place the herb in a strainer um, if you have one. If not, just go ahead and put the herbs into the pot you use to boil the water. But of course, after you've boiled the water, you add the herbs. Make sure again you have a lid. If you're going to use the strainer, you set the strainer into the cup of hot liquid. And you're just going to cover that strainer up so none of the oils evaporate. You're trying to trap those in the water so that you get all the medicinal properties of the tea so what you're drinking is super, super healthy. Um, this is what we're going to talk about today. It was infusions, how to make the basic first aid herbal kit, and just some equipment that you need. Next time we'll talk about some decoctions and various other ways of producing herbal medicines, which is really, really fun. It was nice to talk to you guys today. Thank you for listening so much. This is Nurse Amy, and we will talk soon. Thanks. All right, hey, here's a segment of our show where I take questions posed to me in the past, oftentimes on our friend Jack Spierko's Survival Podcast, or to our email. If you have questions that you'd like me to hear me address on the podcast, just send us the email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. i got to get a new one. That aol.com just translates into old.com these days. All right, here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Dan, who writes, Besides a good diet, flossing, and brushing, I've read of dental products that contain calcium and phosphate ions, such as casein phosphopeptide amorphous calcium phosphate, cpp hyphen ACP. These products are said to help promote teeth remineralization. As an older guy, I'm more aware of having healthy, strong teeth. Do you have dental products with CPP-ACP and also any natural solutions that you would suggest that help with this? I've read where products like Trident chewing gum helps has to do with extra production of saliva and also swishing with hydrogen peroxide helps as well. Thanks, Dan. Dan, I'm glad you mentioned this topic as many in the preparedness community are medically prepared, but few are dentally prepared. 
If a disaster knocks us off the grid one day, the family medic's going to have to take care of dental problems as well as medical. This includes dealing with cavities, broken teeth, tooth extractions, tooth abscesses, and much more. We at Doom and Bloom developed a medical kit specifically for survival settings, which can help. You'll find that on our store. As you age, you lose the minerals in your teeth. This may be caused by eating sugary and acidic foods. It also occurs from bacteria accumulation in your mouth. Once the enamel or bone are gone, there's no way to get them back without replacing the tooth entirely. However, it's possible to help replenish these minerals with lifestyle changes and home remedies before tooth decay occurs. We call that remineralization. To your question, Dan, everyone knows the importance of having healthy teeth, even in older age groups. Prevention with good dental hygiene is very important. Products like sugar-free chewing gum help in the production of saliva. If you don't have enough saliva and develop things like dry mouth, a common old age thing, it can lead to increased plaque, tooth decay, and gum disease. Hydrogen peroxide is a little more controversial. It can be damaging to your gums, your tongue, and your tooth enamel, leading to painful decay that could be costly to repair. Like many chemicals, hydrogen peroxide is only safe in small doses, not straight out of the brown bottle you see in the supermarket. It should be diluted in water in a one-part peroxide to two-parts water formula, like the commercial rinses. I would suggest using it for 60 seconds, maybe once a week or so. Now about CPP-ACP. That stands for casein phosphopeptide amorphous calcium phosphate. CPP is derived from milk protein. Together with calcium and phosphate, it's thought to help remineralize worn down enamel and inhibit certain oral bacteria like strep mutants. Streptococcus mutants is a bacterium that naturally forms in your mouth and can build up on the surface of teeth at any age. It's a major cause of cavities, also known as tooth caries. It's also found in heart infections like endocarditis, which is why you're given antibiotics if you have heart issues and need dental procedures. CPP-ACP can be delivered to the tooth surface in a variety of ways, such as in chewing gum, lozenges, topical cream, mouth rinses, toothpaste, and as an additive in filling cement. The trade names they commonly go by include Recaldent, R-E-C-A-L-D-E-N-T, GC Tooth Mousse, and MI Paste. These are reasonable options, especially for the older patient. Now, there are natural remedies as well to help remineralize tooth enamel. They include, well, some basic things, brushing your teeth, using a fluoride toothpaste. Now, don't shoot the messenger. This is a recommendation of the ADA. Toothpaste does not get ADA approval unless it contains fluoride. Cut out sugar. Of course, sugar is highly acidic and interacts with bacteria in the mouth to break down tooth enamel. More importantly, one study found that a higher frequency in sugar consumption led to demineralization much more than the amount of sugar that was consumed at any one time. In other words, eating sugary foods in small amounts on a regular basis does more harm than eating the occasional sugar-laden dessert. Important to know. You want to chew sugarless gum. Sugarless versions actually promote tooth remineralization. We mentioned that. Sugar-free gum helps remove sugar, plaque, and carbs from teeth while also encouraging your salivary glands to produce more saliva. Gum may also act as a barrier to block mineral loss, so consider chewing it after or between meals. Consuming fruit and fruit juices in moderation. Fruit juices are mostly acidic. They bind to calcium and strip it away. You definitely need to eat less acidic fruit and fruit juices if you eat a lot of them. Keep that in moderation. You want to get more calcium and vitamins. You can replace calcium by eating calcium-rich foods. For example, a 2003 study found that eating calcium-rich cheese could counteract the effects of eating certain sugars. A 2012 study found that taking vitamin D supplements may help prevent cavities.
then you want to consider probiotics. When considering probiotics for remineralization, it's important to choose strains that are naturally produced in the mouth. That way you're replacing the good bacteria without introducing potentially harmful strains. You can find probiotics in supplement form in certain yogurt brands. You'll need to take these daily for the best results. Treat dry mouth. Dry mouth occurs when there isn't enough saliva production. I think I mentioned that saliva is an integral part of remineralization. It not only prevents dry mouth, but it also contains phosphate and calcium. You want to also reduce starchy foods. Potatoes, rice, bread, these are all loaded with simple carbohydrates. These increase the amount of fermentable sugars in the mouth, which can erode your teeth. And, of course, you want to drink more water. We're all walking around a little dehydrated, so this is an unhealthy thing in general. You want to drink more fluid and also help increase your saliva production. Hope this helps. This is Joe Holden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and educational materials available at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's all the time we have. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.